Okay, well, let's begin our study today of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll just give a brief uh, recap today. Um, Solomon has been taking us on a quest for life's meaning. Um, and thus far, uh, he has led us to consider, uh, consider several things. Uh, one, we have um, considered that if, if we look at life in the light of uh, the life that God gives, if we look at life as something that he gives um, uh, to, to us, we, we find purpose. But if we don't, we find vanity. It's an endless cycle of labor and, and toil and pain, all done under the sun. But we've been assured of, of God's providence, his sovereignty over all even sort of seemingly uh, meaningless activities of man, and even over the unjust ones that God is providentially governing and preserving all the activities of man. And we've seen that the selfish state of man and his obsession with power, right, we looked at that last week, uh, is at its core anti-neighbor, right? You can't be obsessed with those things and really be loving your neighbor. Um, and so even those who want the acclaim and they want the followers and although they soon find that man is fickle, you can't rely upon them and they go follow someone else and soon you're left alone as well, right? So we kind of looked at all those elements last week. And so we stand, man stands in a, uh, a need, a greater need for companionship. And where can we find that companionship? Sol- Solomon told us of a God. He told us of a God who has given us the fruit of our labor as a gift to be enjoyed. Back in chapter 2, verse 24, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. We saw that this same God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. That was from verse 26 of the same chapter. This same God makes everything beautiful in his time, chapter 3, verse 11. And he has done all this so that men should fear him, chapter 3, verse 14. So the question is this, can this God that Solomon is introducing us to be approached? Can you approach this God, this amazing God who gives us all these things and who governs all these things? Well, the short answer, the New Testament answer is obviously yes, right? We can approach God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Paul reminds us about the unbelievers. Their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the reading of the Old Testament is sort of veiled to uh, the the Jews. It's veiled even to unbelievers. Um, But that whole veil is taken away in Christ. The veil represents that that curtain that separates the holiest of holy, the most holy place from the rest of the, the tabernacle. That's removed in Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus' body was the veil, and we can boldly approach the Father because Um, of what Jesus did for us. He took the veil away. It was removed. God is approachable, which is good news, isn't it? But how should we approach him? That's the question I think Solomon seeks to answer today. We're just going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So let's look at our passage today. Chapter 5, verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the words that we have before us today. And we thank you, Lord, that Solomon is going to touch on this thought. How do we approach the awesome God that we worship? How should we approach you? Lord, would you guide us into your truth today? We do want to to see what your word says on the subject, Lord. Many want to approach you by their own way. We pray, Lord, you'd show us how you want us to approach you. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives, so help us to do that. Give us your spirit today to reveal truth to us, Lord, that we might live in a way that honors you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, just three admonitions from this passage that I want to give us today. Um, And the first here... in verse 1, is beware of a hasty approach. Beware of a hasty approach to God. Notice what he says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Um, I I mentioned earlier today, you know, just by the illustration of my son's question today, uh, you know, the church is happily embracing um, all all kinds of things that we can certainly look at clearly in the Bible that God would say is, is evil and say that they can approach God right? That you can still approach God and you can still have fellowship with him. He'll still accept you and, and, he, and he loves you because after all, God is a God of love. Um, and my question is, are they really approaching God then? Or are they just being welcomed into a community? Are they just being welcomed into a, a church? Is God really, if God were really there, wouldn't it be great if you could have actually God present and see him? We would know, right? Is this acceptable? Oh, it's not. Okay, you know. But we had that in the Old Testament, didn't we? We can go to our Bibles and open it and see how people messed up. I'm thankful that we don't have to do it in front of everybody today and say, oh, is this right? And then have just lightning come out. He might judge in different ways than he does in the Old Testament. But here we have this idea of walking prudently. Walking prudently is two words in the Hebrew. It's shamer, which is to observe or to keep or to guard, and then regale, your foot. So guard your foot or your leg, right? Keep your foot or your leg. You're you're watching where you step to walk prudently. And the idea is to take great care and concern how we approach God. In fact, he says, when you go to the house of God, Now, it's interesting, that would have been a much easier thing, I think, to do in Solomon's day with Solomon's temple, right? If you were walking up to that amazing structure, you might more easily get into the idea of, this is a solemn time, you know? You'd you'd approach those steps, you'd walk up those steps singing the Psalms, right? You you, you would probably be a little bit more circumspectful as you kind of went up those steps, (laughs) prayerful, right? It's a little harder today when we drive up to Cardiff Metropolitan University, right? And, you, and you're walking by the security guard you ever see every day, right? And we're just kind of walking in. And I, Is this the house of God? Does God dwell within walls? Well, uh, Solomon and David, they struggled with that. They wanted to build God a house. He certainly doesn't dwell within that, but it was built to honor him. It was built at a place where we could come and gather together to worship him, right? And, and Solomon, when he dedicated the, the temple, he prayed that no matter where believers are, right, where they are in the world, if they were turned and face toward the temple and pray, you know, God, you will hear them. Now, we don't have to do that today because of what I just read earlier. The veil has been torn. Who is our temple? Jesus, right? We come to, to God through him. We can approach him. Isn't that good? You don't have to take out your compass and go, now, which way was the, was the temple, Right? We get to just approach God through Jesus. But do we consider, this is my thought today, how we approach him? How do we approach him when we come to Sunday here? 
hurried as you've just chucked clothes on the kids and you've burnt your bacon and you've kicked the dog and you've spilt your coffee, right? And you're, you know, the, the machine isn't working up front, right? You're really ready for worship. Your husband's in yelling at you and you just, the last thing you want to do is come in here and put on a happy face and pretend that you're here to worship God. How, what does it mean to approach God or to walk prudently in the house of God. I want to give you some examples from the Old Testament, which God very severely judged how he was approached. One of the most famous examples that you'll be familiar with is Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, right? In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, sorry, buddy. No, he didn't say that. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Can you believe that? Aaron loses his two sons, and Moses doesn't go up there and go, I'm terribly sorry that happened. He says, I'm sorry, but this is what God said. He must be regarded as holy. He's got to be glorified among the people. And what your sons did did not do that. And what's, what's Aaron do? He held his peace. He gets it. Much easier to see that in that setting, isn't it? How about this example? Maybe less familiar. The men of Beth Shemesh. The men of Beth Shemesh? Who are they? In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemeth because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. They wanted to peek inside the Ark of the Covenant. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemeth said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? The approach to God was, in the Old Testament... (laughs) very carefully controlled. I mean, only certain people were allowed to go into the most holy place. And only after they had done certain rituals and wore certain clothing, right? Very carefully prescribed. Why? Why why do you read through all those things in the Old Testament? Because the overarching uh, attribute of God that was highlighted in the Old Testament was his holiness. That was first and foremost, Yes, God is love. Yes, he is just. But what God wanted the people to make sure they understood was that he was holy. And so he told Moses to tell the congregation that in Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He didn't say you shall be loving for I, the Lord, your God, am loving. Uh, You shall be just because I, the Lord, your God, am just. You shall be merciful. Those things are true. But what he said is, first and foremost, you need to be holy because I'm a holy God. What is holiness? What is holiness? It is God being set apart from all that is sinful. That's his holiness, which means he's set apart from all of us. I don't know anyone here who's holy, right? He's set apart from, from all of us. That's holiness. And it has that idea of that separation. Which is why he goes on in the next chapter of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, to say, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So holiness has to do with separation. I see. That's why he didn't want them intermingling and intermarrying with the pagans. He was trying to establish separation in the Old Testament. He was trying to establish, I am holy. He was trying to establish holiness. Today, people think something different about holiness. People think holiness is this, that God, his holiness, he's just a better version of our human selves. Just just like us, but a little bit better. Okay, not even close. God is holy. Let me give you A.W. Tozer's definition of holiness. This is holiness. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. 
He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. I remember we were going through the attributes of God one year. I was, we were, pastors were teaching the different attributes. Guess which one I got? This one. And I read that definition. I said, I'm supposed to teach holiness? It's unattainable, unapproachable, incomprehensible. I can't understand it. I have to teach it? God's holiness has been diminished in our New Testament minds. We have a lower view of God. Part of it is this. We have a chummy friend approach that we take to Jesus. He's my best friend. We have a chummy friend approach to Jesus, and we highlight that friendship over and above the the reverent, uh, fearful, awesome, holy, majestic God that we worship through Jesus. And it diminishes us. Uh, diminishes who God uh, is. He should instill a a sense of uh, awe in us and majesty. That's the God we worship. When you read Isaiah chapter 6, right, and his vision of the throne room of God, it's a good place to go. This is the response I think we should have. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. That's quite a sight, isn't it? So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's an amazing vision. Even the seraphim in the presence of God covered themselves and cried around, Holy, you're just holy. We love to go, the Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. I think the emphasis is meant to be, The Lord is my shepherd. That's who's shepherding me. That's who's shepherding you. The Lord. So when we approach God, we should be approaching him with reverence and awe. And I know we come to Sunday mornings hurried, all the busyness of the week on our shoulders, right? We've got to get into the mindset uh, mindset of who are we worshiping? Now, not just that, he is talking about coming to the house of God, but be, be careful how you, you walk. How are you, how are you living your life? Are you just running out of your sinful week to come in here and just like, I just want to pay my dues. I just want to, sh- I want to stamp my card. I came on Sunday and now back to it, I'm going to go. How are you walking? Are you carefully noting where your feet are treading? How do you behave all week long? That is the idea. And it leads right into the second idea. Look in the second half of verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. When we come with that kind of perspective of the awesome holy God, the majestic God that deserves worship, then we come to hear. We come to hear, not to be heard. We do come and worship him. We do come to to praise him. But ultimately, we want to come and hear from him. What does God have to say to me? Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'd like to take you there really briefly. This is the idea we see there. Deuteronomy chapter 5. All the people could see the holiness of God. I mean, the mountain was on fire, right? And they could hear the rumblings and they could hear the voice of God. That's just incredible. But in in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 23, verse 23, look at this. This is important. So it was, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. Moses is, is, is reminding the people of this incident. 
And you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We've seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. (laughs) Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more than we shall die. For who is there of all the all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Do you see that? We're too frightened. That is obviously a holy God. I can't even believe I heard him right now. So Moses, you go forward. You're obviously his chosen, you know, ambassador. You go. You just tell us what he has said to do. We're going to hear that, and we're going to do it. Proper worship of God leads to the hearing and doing of what he wants. Do you see my point from earlier? We cannot approach God living sinful lives. It involves hearing and doing what he has asked us to do. And when church leaders and churches are saying, no, no, but God is love, just come in. They're leading people astray. We must hear what he has to say and do what he wants. Proper worship of God leads to hearing and doing what he wants and not what I want. Ultimately, I want to come and I want to do what I want. Now, let me give you a great Old Testament example. I don't think a lot of people look at it this way. You see David in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6, you have this wonderful account of him wanting to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so he, he just organizes this giant procession, this worshipful procession. It's got music. It's got the, all the elite there. It has worship, singing, uh, dancing. He's built a new, ark, uh, a new um, cart to, to, to carry the ark. Remember that? And we always highlight the section about him dancing and his, his wonderful worship of God. But the ark is being carted along, and the cart, the oxen begin to stumble a bit. The ark begins to totter, and Uzziah reaches out his hand to, to steady the ark, and God strikes him dead. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, Uzzah is his name, and God struck him there for his error, and he died before the ark of God. So that's what it says. So David ceases. He leaves the ark where it stands because he doesn't want to go any further. He's, it causes fear in him. He leaves it with Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, when you read that in 2 Samuel 6, that takes you all the way up to verse 10. So all that happens in the first 10 verses. In verse 11, it focuses on this guy, this guy where the ark is, Obed-Edom. And it says that for three months, the ark remained there. And in those three months, God blessed his household. And then verse 12, we're told David hears about that blessing of his household. And so he gets the ark and he moves it to Jerusalem. Here's what it says. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Now, when we read that account in 2 Samuel, it seems like something's missing, right? He's bringing the ark here. This guy touches the ark. He's struck dead. So David leaves it there. And just a few months later, he goes back and gets it and takes the rest of the way. This is why we have our Bibles, because we can go to 1 and 2 Chronicles. I know what happens. We get to 1 and 2 Chronicles, and we realize that it's 1, 2 Samuel, 1, 2 It's all this stuff again. And we go, oh, I've read all this, and we flip through it. Don't do that. Because when you read it, you find out more information. I've been going through 1 and 2 Chronicles this week, and I came across this, and I thought this was absolutely magnificent. 1 Chronicles chapter 13 recounts the same episode I just told you. It just tells you exactly the same thing. He's singing and dancing in the ark, and the guy gets all that. Two chapters later, chapter 15, this is what it says, verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Now, the Levites weren't there before carrying the ark. Who was carrying the ark? A couple of oxen pulling a a cart. He says, no, the Levites are meant to do it. And so he summons the Levites. And then in verse 12 and 13, this is what he says to them. You are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, 
the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. They didn't consult God on how to move God for all intents and purposes, right? They thought like the ark was his dwelling place, right? The Philistines certainly thought that. They would see the box and go, hey, uh, the God is in the camp, right? They didn't even consult God. David had a good spirit about it. He just went ahead and did it. I have this amazing quote. It's a little lengthy, but I've been reading my devotionals in a Spurgeon Bible, and it's accompanied by some of his commentary on some of these passages. And, and this is what he says about this particular incident with David. David's intention was right enough, but right things must be done in a right way. We serve a jealous God who, though he overlooks many faults in his people, will have his word reverenced and his commands obeyed by those who attempt to approach him. So though David's intention was good, he had a great failure, which resulted in great fear. David's great failure followed almost immediately after David and all Israel were dancing with all their might before God with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. That's verse 8. This was David's first attempt to bring up the Ark of the Covenant into the place appointed for it. Notice that there was no failure through lack of multitudes. It is of little value merely to gather crowds of people together. That alone will not guarantee God's presence among us. Nor was there any failure so far as pomp and show were concerned. These people paid great honor in their own way to the Ark, putting it on a new carriage and surrounding it with the princes, captains, and the mighty men of the kingdom. The sacred song may be sweet, and the prayer may be most appropriate so far as its language is concerned, yet it may fail to reach the ear of the Lord God. And though it is right to sing to the Lord with all our might, there may be a certain kind of heartiness which is not acceptable to God because it is, not, it is natural and not spiritual. There may be a great deal of outward expression, yet no inward life. It may be only dead worship after all, despite the noise that may be made. In this case, there was too little thought as to God's mind on the matter. The great, this great understand, uh, undertaking of bringing up the ark of the Lord seems to have been entered with much heartiness and enthusiasm, but not with any preparatory supplication or spiritual consideration. There's not even a mention of humiliation of heart or of solemn awe in the presence of the God whose symbol was the ark. We must take care how we worship God. I thought that was done excellently. Much fervor and much, you know, there was multitudes, and it seems like he did everything right. He did one major thing wrong. He didn't consult God. Well, how does God want me to approach him? How does he want me to do this? We must go to God's word. We've got to see how we can approach him. And if we don't do it correctly, then we may be, as Solomon says here, be making the sacrifice of fools and not even realizing that we're doing evil. David had no idea he was doing evil, and Uzzah died for it. He died as a symbol to the rest. You've got to approach me correctly. I told you how to do it. The Levites do it. You consecrate them. You don't put me on a, on a cart taken by oxen. I'm God, he's saying. That was my symbol. And it was seen as evil for him. Amazing. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. It may have been great sacrifice um, to do all that and to set all that up, but it was a wicked thing in his eyes, in God's eyes. So my question is this. Are you here today to, to hear from God? Is he the focal point or are you? Like a lot of times we come to like, it's about me, right? I want to hear from God. Listen to this indictment from A.W. Tozer. The Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God. Most High God, El, El Yon, right, ladies? And actually constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Hmm. To just be still and to know that he is God. 
We can make a lot of fervor and outward uh, stuff to just kind of say, oh, I just think God's so amazing. I go so, and talking so much. Are you hearing from God? Do you even care what he has to say? Approaching God with a desire to know him deeper will help you avoid another mistake in our approach to God, which he covers here in the next couple of verses. And that's this. Beware of hasty prayers. You want to be aware of a hasty approach to God, but also your hasty prayers. Look at what he says in verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The word rash there is behel, and it just means hasty. So hurried, hasty, anxious. Someone said, never let your heart hurry you into words. Never let your heart hurry you uh, into words. Careless words in prayer are a reflection of the heart because the inner life, the heart, that's where those things are, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we're not careful, words can just start pouring out. And they could be filled with all kinds of things, uh, anguish, uh, resentment, complaining, and listen, we see examples of that in Scripture. In fact, I'm going to take you to an excellent one, Psalm 13. Psalm 13, David, David does this very thing. In fact, he does it, you know, quite often, actually, when you read through his uh, Psalms. When you read the beginning of Psalm 13, you just see David complaining. This is what's coming out of his mouth as he's talking to this holy God. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I prevailed against him. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Right? All that is him just complaining. You're not hearing me, God. Everyone's, you know, my enemy. You don't care. Where are you, God? He starts with complaining, but look where he ends. Verse five, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, we're human after all. God's not expecting perfection. And sometimes we are going to cry out, right? We're going to go, why, why God, why? But where we should end up is here. We can start complaining, but David ended up singing. We should get there. We should get to the point where we realize, oh, I'm in a place of untruth here. I need to get back to truth. And he gets back to truth. He says, no, I'm trusting in your mercy. Nope, I rejoice in your salvation. I sing to you. Why? Because you've dealt bountifully with me. Before it was like, where are you? I don't have anything. Everyone hates me. No, you're my savior. You've given me everything. Do you see the difference? That's where we need to get. Now, where does that come from? A deeper knowledge of God. He knows God does that. He knows he's his salvation. He knows he's dealt bountifully with him. But if you're not in the word and you're not coming to to worship God and find out what he is like and who he is, how are you going to get through those dark times? It'll just be complaining, 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 complaining. It It won't revert to the singing, will it? And so we just throw out hasty uh, prayers, hasty prayers, and they can just be filled with so much untruth and doubt and unbelief that God won't even hear. It's important because what? Well, he says, uh, God is in heaven and you're on earth. God is in heaven and you're on earth. Our hasty and patient words receive this rebuke. It's a rebuking reminder that God is in heaven. That's a reminder of his greatness. And you're on earth, which is a reminder of what? Your smallness, right? So God is great. You're small. Be careful about how you speak to him. Be careful of what you take to him. Do you know him? Are you bringing to him truth? Are you revering him as who he is? So let your words be few. Let your words be few is how that ends. Verse 3. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. Uh, the fool just pours uh, words out of his mouth because they're found in his heart. Doesn't contemplate. Doesn't think before he speaks. Just lets all the words come out. God is impressed by that. He doesn't respond to us positively when we do that. They don't accomplish anything. 
And it's just like those whose dreams cause them to toil endlessly for gain. They have dreams of wealth and power and prestige like we were seeing earlier in the earlier chapters, right? Um, That brings a multitude of busyness and toil and labor. That's what we see going on there through much activity um, and known by his many. Those two phrases, through much activity, known by his many, are the same word in the Hebrew. They're both rove. They just mean a multitude or an abundance of. There's an abundance of activity that comes through the vain dreams of the, uh, the fool, just as there is an abundance of the words, right? Just busy, busy, doing, 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 and then busy, busy, speaking, speaking, speaking. It, both things are taking place in that, the life of that person. This is not someone who comes to God to hear God. This is someone who thinks they're doing all they need to do and saying all they need to say, when sometimes it's not about either of those things. Just be still. What does God say he wants from you? What does God want? Do you know? Proverbs ten nineteen, another proverb of Solomon says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lip is wise. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said to Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard by their many words, right? As long as I say enough stuff, God's going to hear. <laughs> Talk is cheap. In fact, when Isaiah, in that vision of the throne room, what did he realize about his lips? They're just unclean. I, he couldn't even speak to God. My, my lips are unclean. I, I dwell with people who are unclean. How could God even hear me? So we need to start with, no, I want to hear him. I want to hear him. So beware of hasty prayers. We've got to think about how we come to him. It's been so good going through the prayer book with the men because we've been able to contemplate that a little bit more about the things that Paul prays for. They're eternal things. He's constantly praying the scriptures. He's praying that you may abound more and more, right? Your love may abound more and more. In knowledge. Boy, we took some time going through that, just the first half of that this week. What's that mean? That your love may abound more and more in knowledge. Not that you're just loving, but you're loving in knowledge. Well, how, how does God want us to love? And discernment, it says, right? We've got to know the scriptures. We've got to. So we've got to um, listen more than speak. And how good is it to speak and pray the prayers that we find in the Bible? You know you're praying the will of God then. So beware of your hasty approach to God. Beware of hasty prayers. And third, beware of hasty promises. Look at verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Now, this was probably more prominent in the Old Testament. You know, a vow could be taken in the form of a, a just allegiance or maybe a free will offering. I vow to give this to the Lord or maybe in, in, in money. We also see it in a dedication of a child, like a Nazarite vow. You've heard of the Nazarite vow. Hannah's a great example. Hannah wants a child and she prays this prayer to the Lord in 1 Samuel 1.11 that she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. That's quite a, quite a, a vow, quite a promise. I don't have a child, but if you give me a child, a male child, right, I'll dedicate him to you. He'll be yours. Um, and, and we see that, right? She gets, she gets Samuel, he becomes Eli's. She does that whole thing. She stays true to her word there. But why is it important? Why does God care about whether you make a promise uh, or not, whether you stick to your word or not? Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 through 23 says this. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Hmm. So notice what it says here. There's no sin in abstaining from making a promise. It's actually better to just keep your mouth shut. But if you promise something to the Lord and you don't do it, you're sinning. It's a sin issue. It's an integrity issue, isn't it? And you see this sometimes. 
people mean well. Maybe they've been gone uh, from church for, for so long, and, they, they, and they're finally back, and they come to the pastor, and like, oh, that's it, you know, I've had such a, but I'm back, man, I'm back, I'm, I'm not going to miss a Sunday, and I'm, gonna, and, they, and I'm just listening, going, yeah, 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 uh-huh, yeah, I, maybe, maybe that'll be true, maybe it won't, right, you got to be careful about that, you got to be careful, like, oh, and I'm going to tithe this much, and I'm going to do this, and I, uh, it's all exciting on the outside, but it's just talk at that point, isn't it, it's an integrity issue. God looks upon those things as a, actually a serious thing. In Proverbs 20, 25, another Solomon proverb, it's a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. The mouth must be kept under control because we can make promises that we can't keep. Now, you know, even churches do this. Even churches do this. I knew of a church that had, came up with a new campaign called You Can't Outgive God. You can't outgive God. And the whole campaign was just give financially to the Lord, okay? Give to him and give to him. And what you're going to see is that he will outgive what you've given. You won't be able to outgive God. So just give, give, give. It was a giving campaign, right? A financial fundraising thing. Or your money back. I didn't add that. That was true. If you don't see the results, God has an outgiven, you'll get your money back. So I actually asked this person, I know the person that was in this church, and said, so did you ever have any cases where people were coming back and saying, oh, you know what, I like a refund. <laughs> I like my money back because I didn't see it. He goes, well, yeah, you have, you have a few people that do that. Yeah, because you've made a rash vow on behalf of the people. You have spoken for God. You have said, if you give enough money, right, you will see God's going to outgive what you've given. What if he doesn't? Now you're stuck. And so the people gave, and they expected, okay, okay. Now, what's wrong with the whole thing to begin with? You're giving because you want more in return. You're not giving because you want to see God's kingdom build up. You're not giving out a sacrifice. You're just giving like, okay, Lord, I gave. Now give me or my money back, right? There's no sacrifice. Like, this is a win-win situation. I can give merit. I can write the deed to my house, my car. give it all to you because guess what? I got nothing to lose because my money back, guarantee. So like, I'm going to give this house to you, God. Give me a bigger house. Didn't come. Well, give my house back. Ridiculous. But this is being taught in churches. Just give. You can't outgive God. The principle is true. You can't. But I don't dictate what God's going to give back to you. I can't guarantee that he's going to give. We're just called in Scripture to, to give sacrificially, abundantly, um, and not under compulsion. We shouldn't be doing that. That's a rash vow from the church, seeking God's blessing and desire, desiring to see his power without really seeking God. There's no seeking God there. It's better simply just not make a promise, isn't it? Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Verse 6, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse to destroy the work of your hands? The, the mouth by its hasty words can lead us into sin. We talked about that with integrity. The word flesh there is basar, and it means the body itself. So really, you can be talking about just moral failure here as well. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say something to the messenger of God. And that can be the bishop, the reverend, the pastor, whoever, right? That, oh, you know, I know I made that promise, but I, it was a mistake. <laughs> that's, that's the idea here. The problem here is something that James talks about a lot. If you read the book of James, right? Talks about the power of the tongue, right? And what the tongue can do. In James chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. That's the concept there, right? Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Your mouth can lead your body to places you shouldn't be right? Your mouth can take you places that you have no business being in because you've made some promise, you've made some rash vow, you haven't thought through what would, would God care about. And we just can't take those words back. We can't go to the, oh, you know, I made a mistake about that. I shouldn't have said that because Jesus speaks about that in Matthew five thirty seven. let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. It's a yes or it's a no. 
James speaks about that as well in James 5, 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. That is so interesting. And as I read this verse too, why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? I remember a mentor of mine that used to talk about the destroyer. And I think it was in reference to this uh, verse and also maybe James 5, 12. And that is this, that in times of, of trouble in his life, and maybe he was maybe going through an economically difficult time or a series of physical illnesses or those kinds of things, the first thing he did was stop and get on his hands and knees and search his heart to see if he had done anything that God was rebuking him for. Because he was talking about this, like, did I do something with my mouth or with my body or anything that has caused some kind of sin in my life that I'm not aware of, and now God is destroying the work of my hands? You see that idea? The destroyer was going through, right? I've had four flat tires in a row. My transmission went out. My, my sink erupted, and my boiler blew up, right? All these things at once. Now, listen, those things can happen at once. I'm not saying it's like, you know, the demon are in the pipes, right? But God... But God sometimes is trying to get our attention. Like, are you still going down that path? Because I'm, I'm trying to wake you up. And, and, and this pastor's point was that, that God would just go in there and, and just take out what you have achieved in those times because you've done it in the wrong way. Does that make sense? The destroyer had come. All right, that was fine. Now that's gone. Can you try it again? But do it the way I've told you to do it. Do it with integrity, with honesty, Right? Do it above reproach because he wants Christians to be integrous. He wants our yeses to be yeses and our noes, noes. And I think a lot of times we just like to blur the lines a bit and say it's just okay. But for, for God, integrity is a massively important thing. Christians should be the most trustworthy and upright people on the planet I have found that even as I have gone into the church to seek help with things like, you know, labor at the houses and skilled things, like I've actually come across those people who have dealt un unfair with me, you know, dishonestly, without integrity, right? I've, I've seen that happen. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing to see that taking place in the church. We've got to be making sure that we're, we're doing these things for the Lord in an upright way. Uh, way. And we're not just rashly uh, saying, oh yeah, yeah, I can do that, I can do this, I can do that, and just finding ways to cut corners. We want our work to be for the glory of God, don't we? And not for the glory of, of man. So listen, don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Don't, or, or say before the messenger of God that it was an error, because God will destroy the work of your hands. Verse 7, for in the multitude of dreams and many words there is there is also vanity, but fear God. Now, this could be translated a couple of ways. I'm going to read those few ways. Um, it can be translated for in many dreams and vanities, there are also many words. You can say it that way. You can also say it for just as there are dreams in abundance, so there are also vain words in abundance. Or you can say in spite of many dreams and vanities and words, fear God. But all those translations are making the same point, aren't they? People, if they're not careful in their approach to God, are, are prone to carry their, their illusions, their dreams, their goals, right, with them while they worship. And they're prone to speak without thinking. And if a promise is made while you're in that state, you're, you're, you're on dangerous ground. We've got to come to the house of God with the intent of encountering God, hearing from him, growing deeper in our knowledge of God. Here's a quote from our Praying with Paul book. Men, you might remember from one of the earlier chapters, D.A. Carson wrote this. In the biblical view of things, a deeper knowledge of God brings with it improvement in other areas. Purity, integrity, a willingness to sacrifice, evangelistic faithfulness, better study of scripture, improved private and corporate worship, better relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, a heart for the lost, and much more. 
But if we seek these things without passionately desiring a deeper knowledge of God, we may be running after God's blessings or pursuing God's power without running after him. We're meant to come to him. Ultimately, we want God. I see a lot of people fervently wanting the blessings of God, right? Wanting to see his, his power, but do they know God? Do they know his word? This is where it starts, right here, folks. We begin by the proper approach to God. We come to him, not with our own agendas, but seeking his. What is your will for my life, Lord? I may have all this going on, and I may have my own ideas of how to fix that. Probably they're wrong, <laughs> right? I'm just, I know I'm going out on a limb here. He's probably got the better way, and I want to take those things to him. I just want to sit still before you, God, and I want to hear you. What do you have? What do you have for me? We come to this place. This I can say this is a house of God. He doesn't live here um, that I know of, um, but he's here. When we come and gather together, he's here. This is his house. His presence is here because we come to worship him. We do come to experience him. We do come to, um, you know, pray to him. But I hope you do come to hear from him. I hope that's the primary reason, that you want to know him deeper. Because with a deeper knowledge of God, all those other things will come. What seek first is what? His kingdom and his righteousness. And all those things will come to you. So start with seeking him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this time in your word. And Lord, for Solomon's wise words here to take a moment to cause us to consider how we approach you. Lord, it is a sad thing that so many churches are lulling people into the delusion that they can live in sin and be approaching you. And those are the things that we can see outwardly, Lord, but I'm sure that we some of us commit this every week ourselves, Lord, that we've just been living in sin, maybe, maybe a sinful uh, actions or sinful thoughts through the week and just not properly taking those things to you, not really coming uh, to know you deeper and know your will, just to tick a box maybe or just to enjoy fellowship. Lord, I do pray that we would really take, take heed to these words, that we would consider how we approach you that we would walk prudently because you are a holy God. You're not just holy in the Old Testament. You're holy in the new. And you still are separate from sin and you still demand holiness. We praise you, Lord, that we can't be holy though, but you have given us perfection through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. And thank you that we can, uh, Lord, on this, this side of heaven, begin to see how we are meant to be and how we are meant to look. Although we won't reach it this side of heaven, we look forward to that day when we will be like him in perfection, in radiance, and in glory. God, thank you for this time in your word. I do pray that you will receive all the glory and honor. Do your holy name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.